With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. ReopenAmericaResourceCenter.com. Are you struggling personally or professionally because of the coronavirus shutdown? Ready to grow your business and serve more customers and clients? Finally, there's a trustworthy website with resources, relief options, grants, support, and much more for small businesses, nonprofits, and individuals. One location with all the information. It's time to get back to work, life, and reopen America. Visit ReopenAmericaResourceCenter.com today. The ultimate resource platform to help you in every way. This is Everything Home, the transformational show about life, laughter, and the pursuit of happiness delivered by good people doing good business and good things. Let's take the word freedom. Wouldn't it be great to have more professional freedom, personal freedom, and how about financial freedom? Every week, Michelle Swinnick, the queen of quality content, interviews experts, entrepreneurs, professionals, and purpose-driven people to share their stories, their passions, and provide real-life, tangible takeaways. Get ready to be entertained, yet learn some incredible information. This is Everything Home, and this is Michelle Swinnick. Today, we're going back in time to discuss the writers and behind-the-scenes stories of several of the most memorable shows in television comedy with my guests, Paula Finn and Ken Esten. Our topic, behind the scenes of classic TV comedies. It's all about the writers. Paula Finn is an author of sitcom writers talk shop, behind the scenes with Carl Reiner, Norman Lear, James L. Brooks, Ken Esten, and other geniuses of TV comedy. She's also the author of 10 gift books and a writer for numerous greeting card companies, such as Blue Mountain Arts. I can almost guarantee that you've purchased a card or a mug or a poster, or even a wall decor with one of her inspirational writings. And Ken Esten is an Emmy award-winning veteran comedy writer and was the showrunner of Cheers, Taxi, and the creator of The Tracy Ullman Show. Before I bring them on, a shameless plug for our talk radio show, podcast, and patriotic purpose-driven resource platform. All of our episodes are listed on our website, everythinghometalkshow.com. Please check it out. Begin to use it as a resource to meet, learn from, and hire the experts, guests, professionals, and members of the Everything Home Socially Conscious Referral Network and Marketplace. They are truly good people doing good business and good things. People and companies you can trust to provide quality content, products, and exceptional service. Speaking of products, we've created a way for you to purchase the products you normally do online and support nonprofit organizations at the same time. Just click the Marketplace tab on our website or visit ReviveOurAmericanDream.com. That's ReviveOurAmericanDream.com. We've partnered with well-known brands and websites, so 2 to 20% of your total purchase, as long as you click on our banners and links on the website, is donated to the charitable movement to support our vets, pets, and kids. The concept is all about community power philanthropy. You're buying something, doesn't cost you any extra, but as long as you click on our links through the website, a donation is made. Click 
by Make a Difference. So thank you for supporting our movement and tell your friends. You can also follow us on social media. All links are on our website. And don't forget to rate and review Everything Home so you can receive one entry to win a free giveaway in our monthly contest. This episode summary has the link or visit everythinghometalkshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast so you never miss any of our great guests or special segments. First, my joke, and I know it's probably something I shouldn't be doing a joke when I'm talking about Emmy award-winning writers, but it is part of the structure of the show. So first, my joke, and then on with the show. If your working television sits on top of your non-working television, you might be a redneck. And I know that the writer is not going to—he's not going to laugh at it. But the no, point that's of my funny. Guess, I just don't. I'm Don't laughing. Laugh out loud, <laughs> I try to do a cute little joke before the show that has to do with the theme of the show. And believe it or not, the other jokes that I did find about TV were not clean and they weren't nice. So that was the best joke that I could find about TV. Today's topic, behind the scenes of classic TV comedies. It's all about the writers. And I've got two writers here on the show. So Paula, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you. And Ken, about you? I'm fine. Thanks. All right. So let's get into it first with Paula. You wrote the book, which is Sitcom Writers Talk Shop Behind the Scenes with Carl Reiner, Norman Lear, James Brooks, and even Ken. Talk a little bit about how that came to be and how you were able to even be in the room and interview with some of these great comedy classics. Okay. Well, my father was a television writer. He wrote for such shows as The Honeymooners, the Flintstones, the Gale Storm Show. So I grew up in the culture. And at first I thought I'd write a memoir about what it's like growing up with a funny father because he was the life of every party. But then I talked to some of his former colleagues like Larry Gelbart, who created the TV show MASH, and Leonard Stern, who had written with him on The Honeymooners. And their stories were so entertaining as well that I decided to broaden the scope of the book and interview a lot of writers to get their varying perspectives and experiences. Yeah, when you were growing up, did you even put two and two together of who these people were that were just probably coming over to your house for a dinner? No, I know Sherwood Schwartz, because my dad was in Logan's Island. He was just a name to me. I had no idea how nice he was till I met him now. I hadn't met him before. I was too young. Looking back, at what point do you think that you went, oh, my God, I had no idea that I was in the presence of these people when I just thought they were, you know, like Uncle Bob, and it was it was Bob Newhart. You know what I mean? You know, Bob Hope <laughs> called our house once because my dad was working on his show, and he said, hi, this is Bob. And literally, my dad said, Bob who? <laughs> no, I knew because I watched TV myself, so I knew. I knew it was a special profession to have because... Even when I was like six years old, my first grade teacher asked me all about my father's work. So I got the sense early on that it was something the people were impressed by. When you decided to write the book, were you able to meet these people in person or did you have to do some of it over the phone? Some of it over the phone and some of it in person, depending on their availability and also if they live in L.A. or not. Well, and most of them have got to be older. These shows are classics. Anyone passed since you wrote the book and interviewed them? Yes. Yes, they have. Several, in fact. Well, Sam Bobrick and Sherwood Schwartz and Leonard Stern. But how great is that, that you got a chance to actually meet them, at least talk to them and do this interview to capture 
some story or some piece of history in a different way than might not have been interviewed in 10, 20 years, just because nowadays, if you're not in the mix of something that's current, rarely is there an opportunity to share some sort of a story about what you've done. And it's very honorable that you got a chance to do that and kind of pay them that respect to be able to have people listen and hear something real special about them. I hope they felt honored. I was the one who was grateful to them, but, you know, I hope it was good for them too. I'm sure it was. sure they were really grateful. Tell me a little bit about the interviews, some funny stories, something that jumped out at you. I was most surprised by the stress that some of the writers went through to produce and their lack of confidence that they could still keep doing it. I know one writer told me after every script, he just thinks, that's it. There are no more stories in the world. We've done it all. And even Larry David, he told me, has the same syndrome going on that just they think they're through. And that surprised me. And that was even when the show was already successful? While they were writing a successful show, sure. Every script. Bill Rosenthal, who was creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, he would worry constantly, no matter how the last show had gone, he was sure this one wouldn't be good. Yeah. Now, is that something, uh, Ken, that's just in the writer's DNA, or is it because the shows were successful? I mean, give us a little bit of your thoughts on that. I heard something similar with not necessarily only writers, but just some Hollywood actors in general, too, that it seems to be that there's a lack of confidence, but you should have the most. doesn't seem like if you're that good like you guys are, you know, it seems like you shouldn't be worried about coming up with another great idea. The odd thing is she's right. Almost every writer I know lacks confidence. No matter how successful they are, they're afraid that the next one won't work or this one was just a bad idea or this one wasn't executed as well as it should have been. Yeah, they're the most insecure people. Is that why they become writers? That makes them even funnier because they are insecure and this is the only chance that they get that other part of themselves out into the open. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's true about actors, too, that actors sometimes, some actors get nervous and even to the point of nausea before they go on to perform. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why that is. It's something about entertaining that is always nerve-wracking. You're always under pressure. Are you going to be as good as you were last time? Exactly. From the outsiders, you would think it's just the opposite. As you advance and they expect more and more from you, that becomes hard because then you say you were working on a show and now you're running a show. You start wondering, did I go past my point of expertise? Have I, will I be able to run a show? And then they expect so much from you when you're running a show that, that you're nervous all over and you long for the days when you just worked on a show and somebody else took that responsibility. Do you think that is because, and Paula can probably answer this one because she would have experienced it with their dad. Do you think that pressure is there became later on because obviously a lot more money was involved with the shows making money and actually costing money as opposed to when the honeymooners came out and they didn't really understand the power of advertising and the salaries weren't there? Or was it always that much pressured? I would think for creative artists, there'd always be the pressure. And especially once you establish yourself, then people are expecting a certain level of performance from you. I think artists always want to be appreciated and they're always afraid they won't. And I think that's stronger pressure than the money. But appreciated by their so, peers or by the audience or you, or by their bosses? By, by the audience, probably... by, by both. 
by both, by the audience and by their peers. I did stand-up comedy, too, and there was always this sense that maybe this audience isn't going to like you. And sometimes an audience didn't like something you did for another audience that loved it. So it's just hard. It's, some people say, oh, artists or, or you know, entertainers want to be loved. They're looking for love they didn't get, which is not, I don't think that's the case. I think it's just when you're an artist and you're putting yourself out there, this is what I do. I'm looking for instant approval, either applause or laughter. You're afraid you won't get it. And you felt that way, Ken, even at the highlight of Taxi and Cheers and even Tracy Ullman still? I think I did get past it. Some people I know never did. I think in my only in my very early days did I feel that. Later on, I was just glad to be making a ton of money. <laughs> right. Um, the older you get, you go, you know what, this is not, I, I can I can deal with this. It'll be fine. So, Paula, did any of the writers that you interviewed, did they say that it got easier once they got older or once they realized, Ken, this is a lot of money, I just need to be happy with this and it's okay? Did they, did they give you any of that feedback during your interviews? No, they didn't mention the money aspect. Treva Silverman, who was with Mary Tyler Moore, said that something like 100 years of therapy have made it easier. And now there's medication as well. <laughs> Maybe that's why well, the shows aren't as funny. Maybe there's more medication in psychiatry so people are not as screwed up, so not being as funny. I don't know. Yeah, there's there's got to be some think, sort of a connection there. I don't think the, the sitcoms or the half-hour comedies are as funny as they used to be. You were talking earlier about the purity of the earlier comedies. And I think there was something to that that made them funnier. Well, because I think it's real humor. If you watch an old episode of either the Dick Van Dyke, the Mary Tyler Moore, or even Cheers, and as I mentioned earlier when we were talking before, the Isle of Lucy, they didn't have to go overboard. And they didn't make anything, I don't want to say that like R-rated. There was really no swearing. So it was pure humor and it was almost like yeah, that's it, true. It, stands, it you know it, it holds the test of time regardless of what age group you decide to watch it when you guys were growing up if you're watching a show at probably let's say 10 and then all of a sudden you're watching it again when you're in your 40s you still find it funny because it was <laughs> because it was real funny it was real humor as opposed to some of the junk but- that's out there now well, some of it now goes for shock value and embarrassment kind of humor or just getting you caught off guard. That kind of humor we didn't do because we weren't allowed to do it, so we didn't. Yeah, and then that's the other so thing, we, too, is you had restrictions on what you were allowed to say and what people were allowed to actually do. And it was not until, I think it was the Brady Bunch, when they were allowed to have the husband and wife in the same bed together. You guys had one arm behind your back when you were trying to write, even though what they call them, was it the censors? I know that there was a name for the team that would come down and say, okay, well, we can't do that. You guys got to get that out of there. They were called broadcast standard executives. They were censors, yes. John Rappaport, who wrote for Laugh-In, among other things, he says he's a bit jealous of the early writers because they were being just as funny, or they were capable of being just as funny, but they did have so many limitations on what they could do. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that a married couple couldn't be in the same bed. That was that was the truth, and, and it was something that, it's kind of like if you had to write a haiku or a sonnet, is this specific kind of poetry, once you accept the rules, in some ways it makes you more creative within those limitations. It's easier yeah, to you, laugh 
when you have yeah, the shock value going for you. Otherwise, you have to maybe, like, if you were, you have to describe it better. You have to actually have some substance to it as opposed to some, somebody just whipping off their shirt and making the audience laugh. You actually have to have a, a story and a script. I mean, so does, as you both watch shows now, is it frustrating or is there a couple of shows that you do find humor in when they do it the right way or it's just difficult to watch because it's just irritating to you? I don't really watch sitcoms other than I discovered Mom, and the earlier seasons of that I think were better than what they're doing now. The early seasons of Modern Family were were quite good, too. But other than that, not really anything that jumps out at you that could say, all right, this one has a chance. It's a decent show. Well, they're just different. Like you are describing earlier, that it has changed, whether it's evolved or not, it's different. There's much more drama in comedy now. There's much more shock value in comedy. There's much more sex and violence in comedy. We just never had those things, so we had to keep them laughing. In a comedy, if they're not laughing, in the old days, it was failing. Today, you cannot be laughing and be reacting to something else. But there was nothing else to keep your audience in the old comedies except laughter. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, us, the layman people, we don't necessarily look at it that way. But when you bring it out and discuss it, it, it actually kind of, it does make sense as to comedies now. They don't have to always be funny. The writers that you interviewed, Paula, what, what was their thoughts on all that? What did they contribute to that part of the conversation? Well, as I said, John Rappaport was jealous that they had to work harder to get the audience to laugh because they couldn't rely on the easy shock value or lewd jokes. But they were just as funny as the people working today. Yeah, but like I said, you guys have mentioned that it's just better quality writing. So what about some funny stories that you guys want to share? Or let's start with Paula, the, the interviews. And then the list here is long of the writers from Everybody Loves Raymond to The Simpsons to Seinfeld, Frazier, Home Improvement. Obviously, you got a chance to talk to Ken about Cheers and Taxi. There had to be a bunch of stories that you not only you might remember some of it because your dad might have been involved with some of the stories. Well, actually, the story that stayed with me was a sad story. I don't know if you if you want to hear that, but yeah, um, take it. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's because it, it's, it's nostalgia. It's history, you know. Yeah, Sherwood Schwartz was working on let's see, I think the Red Skelton Hour. He had three other writers, and one of them was dying. And his wife had begged the other writers not to tell him he had some kind of a genetic cancer, and so. They had to write comedy, and then every so often they'd have to leave the room just to cry, and then they'd come back and continue with the broad comedy. It must have been very difficult. And he said it was so wonderful dramatically that he wanted to turn it into a play where a guy is dying and the other two people know it, and he doesn't, and yet they have to write funny. That's a good idea. How come he never did it? He was never able to. It was just too hard emotionally. I used to do stand-up, and when my partner... Just before we went on stage to do stand-up, which is really looking for big laughs in a stand-up routine, he found out that his best friend died in a car accident. And then we had 10 minutes before we were going to go on stage. And he went on stage. I I was ready to say, you know, we'll we'll explain that we can't go on or something. He said, no, I'm going on. And he went on. He was just as though it had never happened. And then afterwards, he he did his mourning. No, is that something that... The show must go on. Yeah, exactly. Now, do you think that that's a talent because of being in the industry or has something to do with writing and being funny and stand-up, or is it just he 
it's not common. Or I, I think the pain is closely related to laughter. I'm not the first to say that, obviously, but I think people laugh at things that hurt them and things that are painful when they're not directly involved in it in the moment. They escape by laughing at it. That's jokes about misfortune all the time get laughs as long as it's not happening at the moment. Hmm. So I think I yeah. think it is. I think it's a way. I think laughter is a way of us of human beings dealing with a world that's full of pain. Yeah, it definitely keeps your mind off of it. It's almost like a coping mechanism, also. In the book, Paula, you had said behind every great sitcom and even a whole crew of people. The number one person really is that writer. So what I wanted to give an an idea to the audience is, you know, an overview of how a writer actually creates an episode or a show, and then it develops into something that's picked up as a series. That's maybe even something that is prime time where now it, it really sticks. So if you guys want to kind of give that picture so, you know, the audience can really understand how difficult it is to create something as amazing as a taxi or a cheers. Well, it requires a lot of luck to get something on the air and then to have it stay on. Mm-hmm. You love what you're doing, yeah. The process yeah. has changed. In the 60s, when my dad was doing it, the sitcoms were written by freelancers. So you'd have one or two writers on a script and then they would present it to the producer, and they'd talk about it, and then they'd be sent home. They'd work it out at homes or a private office, and then they'd work on the second draft, and then take the third draft. But the process has become one where now there's a writer's room, so you have a ton of writers, you know, in the double digits sometimes, all shouting out jokes at the same time, and it's a very different process. There's competition, there's resentment that grows among them. It seems like there's a lot more layers, there's a lot more legal, there's a lot more bodies as opposed to maybe back when you were doing it, Ken, where you guys were allowed to be creative and, you know, maybe there's one or two that really were the well, writers that were made the shows, you know, is that is that more of how the way it used to be? I think so, I, especially going way back to the early people that Paula interviewed, I think that they had smaller staffs, and I worked on small staffs on Taxi and Cheers. We only had four or five people total, but some of these shows have 15, 16 people on their staff. I've heard of shows that have 20. I don't understand how they all work together in the room pitching jokes and pitching story and dialogue with that many people. It's, it, I've never done it with that many people, so I don't know, but I, I see the credits, and I talk to people, and, and they have that. They have Sometimes you have to divide the room into sections because there's so many of them. Is it more a little bit more manufactured where they kind of have a template or and they're just putting in certain characters or certain dialogues as opposed to really creating a show where maybe that's why they can have more shows? Is it Or is it just it takes 15 people nowadays to do what <laughs> the more talented people were able to pull off in four, four well, only four people years ago. Is that maybe that's part of it? I don't know, but I, I will say this: that today the shows are still usually created by one or two people. It's not the team doesn't create a show. When you're creating a brand new series, it comes from the imagination of one person or two people, and they do all the work in creating the pilot, the first episode, and getting the form of the show established. And then once the show is, is on the air, 
that's when they hire a whole slew of people to come in and, and help with the writing of the episodes. So when you went on to taxi, you were young. You were in your, what, mid-20s, and you started yeah. as a writer and then moved up to basically the head writer running the show. I mean, you want to give a little right. bit of the story because anybody in their 20s that accomplishes something like that, you got, you got to give them a lot of credit. That's just not, that's not normal. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you talk about no, that, what normal. you do. No, no. No, you know, in some ways, when when you go into TV writing, it's a little bit of a lottery. If you don't have a ticket, you can't win. But if you have a ticket or two, you have a chance. If you have a lot of tickets, you have a better chance. So if you submit a lot of scripts, if you write and write and write, submit scripts through an agent and get it to lots of different shows, even the same script to different shows, you increase your chance of having a job on a show. Once you get a job on a show... If you impress them well enough, you can work your way up from story editor, which would be the first step to eventually a co-producer and a producer and executive producer. And then once you're the executive producer of a show like Taxi, which was my case, the network comes to you and says, do you have any ideas for a series? So it's a process that requires a little bit of luck, though, because I had to get to the right people at the right time to get my career going. So I I don't know now. I think there, for talented people now, there are even more out there competing with them because when I was doing it, none of the schools had a TV department, none of the colleges had TV departments. They had film departments and they had theater departments, their school of entertainment, but they didn't have TV. And now every major university and college has a TV department, so you have more competition. Interesting. So when you got your first Emmy, I think it was you were 28. Is that how young you were when you got that? Yeah. Uh-huh. I was shocked. I was shocked. I had a lot of things happen that it was like spinning the roulette wheel and having double zero come up that you bet on. You know, it's just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. The very first spec script I wrote got me my first job. And the first show I got on was an Emmy-winning show. So I ended up running with that show. So when I was still very young, I was able to win an Emmy with something I wrote for that show. It just, it just doesn't happen. I mean, I won the lottery and I expect that I just made it hitting all the right places at the right time. It just doesn't happen that way. Usually almost ever. I won the writer's guild award with my very first script. My very first script was considered the best script written that year. And I was only then maybe 24 or something. But it was because it was at the right place. It was a script for Taxi, and although my name wasn't on it when they judged it, when it was selected, it was still a Taxi, and Taxi was the number one comedy on the air at the time. So what was the odds that I would be on that show to get a chance to write a show that would get that kind of attention, an episode that would get that kind? So you need a bit of luck. Anybody will tell you that who makes it, if they're honest. You have to have talent, but you have to have luck as well. So Taxi was... Uh, sounds like it was your favorite project that you worked on. I mean, looking back and seeing who was on that show, they've all oh, gone yeah. on to become very well-known. I mean, there really isn't somebody on there that, that anybody that, oh, yeah, that's right. I oh, No, that's right. They were on Taxi. So tell a little bit about the yeah. show, some stories, some camaraderie. I mean, anything, because they it was well, probably I, one of the shows that everybody knew the cast. Yeah, it was also a show where... Everybody got along so well. Everyone was so happy to be on a show that was so well-received that after every single episode that we shot, 
there would be a big party afterwards. And it'd be late at night. We'd finish maybe 10, 11. And there'd be a big party with drinks and music and people be dancing. And I never had that again. That was my very first experience in the business. And I thought, wow, show business is fun. <laughs> and then, and then I, I, I never worked on another show. On Cheers, which was my next big show, everybody just went home. When they said, cut, you know, for the final cut, okay, that's it. Everybody just left the place. It was over. Nobody stuck around and talked or drank or did anything. And it was like that for every show I worked on after that. Never worked on a show again where people were so happy about working and just wanted to party after the show because they felt so good about it. Well, was, was that because it was the 70s, not the 80s, where things kind of changed or no? It was it's just the personalities is what really, what made the show the show. I think it was the show. personalities. I think it was just a, a group of people who were all young and happy to be working. Danny DeVito, for example, he had been struggling for a long time, long time without getting a break. Wonderful character actor, but, you know, he was short and not very attractive and a little odd in a lot of ways. And then he found the perfect part for that. He found the part that needed all those very things. And it's the same with just about everybody on the show. Judd Hirsch had never, hadn't done television for years, and he was very successful on Broadway. But they talked him into doing television. So we had a guy who was a big hit on Broadway coming to do our television show. We had really quality top actors performing. Judd Hirsch gets his name before the show, which I've never seen before or after. It's Judd Hirsch. Impact. So huh. everybody on the show pulled their weight. The writers were, were outstanding. The, the director was brilliant. The showrunners were brilliant. Just we knew we could count on everybody. Everybody cared so much about it. It was I never found that again. Even though Cheers ran much longer and was much more successful in terms of longevity and maybe awards and such, it just didn't have that same feel of glad to be doing this, really happy to be there. And do you keep in touch with any of the stars from the show or any of the other writers or producers? Yeah, with some. Not many. Everybody pretty much goes their own way once the show's canceled. And, and then we keep in touch for a while, but it's kind of like the old friends from college or high school. You intend to keep in touch and you don't. Mm -hmm. We don't mm -hmm. much. Yeah, it's interesting that the, the Cheers crew wasn't as close. When you would think, based on the the interaction that they have on the show, you would think that they would have some synergy off the air, that they'd be a little bit more of a, of a unit, like they like you're mentioning they were on Taxi. It's kind of surprising. I was surprised, too. I, I expected the same parties. I came from Taxi to Cheers, and, and I expected the same parties. Especially, I think they projected even a, a friendlier, happier environment. You know, Cheers is a place everybody wanted to go, but everybody just wanted to go home. It was a place everybody wanted to go home from when it was done. And being in the, the age you were, you're in your 20s, you're writing for a number one show. How is that? At least were you single so you could take advantage of the popularity and the nice paychecks that you had? It, really, it was it was wonderful. I, I, I can't express it enough. It was amazing, wonderful. I never had that experience again. I started on the best show at the time, the best show on television, got to run it, got to be the head guy, and everybody loved everybody on the show. And it just never happened like that again. I, it was funny because my early experience made everything else kind of disappointing by comparison. As I yeah. said, I made a lot of money, and, and, and that kept me going. 
the fun of it didn't keep me going. It stops being fun at some point when when everybody's just doing it and going home. It's not as much yeah, fun. As you know, like you said, it becomes work and a job. And Paula, did they express any of the author or the writers that you interviewed for your book? Did they express something similar where they had one show that was just amazing? They they had camaraderie with the with the whole cast, and then after that, it just became work and paychecks. Not really, but Jim Brooks spoke fondly of Taxi with the parties and all the great people in it. So Taxi was the show. I mean, that, that was the cool one to be a part of, apparently, if that was, <laughs> even if James Brooks is talking about it. Yeah, that's what I say. That's another lottery. I just won the lottery. I mean, it's just, I, it never got as, it was never as good again. I've never spoken to anybody who enjoyed five years as much as the people who did Taxi. Hmm. Even people who did MASH, and MASH was much more successful. I know people from that. And it was my favorite show at the time. And I don't know, it just, It must have just been a fluke. It was just a fluke. Of the shows that you did work on, the actors that you got a chance to work with or even meet, was one of them really that stood out to you as, God, this is my favorite, and this is somebody that I love working with? This is one that you kind of gravitated to? No, because I loved writing for everybody on Taxi. I'd say, again, I keep going back to that, that everybody was a pleasure to write for, and I enjoyed writing for all of them. And the only person I didn't like writing for, to tell you the truth, was Andy Kaufman. And the only reason for that was Andy was a little stranger. A little. <laughs> yeah. Being so, kind. <laughs> yeah, Andy, I have to say, Andy didn't party with us. We don't ever know where where Andy was before the show or where he was after. I, one time we were trying to start a show and, and he wasn't there. and We couldn't find him in his dressing room or anywhere. And somebody just was walking through the parking lot and saw him sitting in a car, just meditating while the show was supposed to be shooting. So Andy was kind of an oddball, but Jim Brooks used to think Andy was a genius, and that's why he was so odd. Probably is true. A lot of people that are, uh, let's say, a little off, they're too smart. And I'm sure you've you've heard that often. Yeah. And there, yeah. You know, the, the thing, and there, no drugs, though, on, on any of these? Or at least not during the show, but I mean, behind the scenes, and I know that they did that on Saturday Night Live and 70s and 80s. That's what a lot of people did. Even, you know, performers, rock stars, they were doing all that. There was none of that on any of, of your guys' shows, at least oh, that you didn't you, know about? Was there any with yours? Because no. No, Treva Silverman, I mean, they smoked. Otherwise, pretty they clean. Smoke weed. Yeah. On, on our shows, on every show I worked on, I never. We didn't allow it, and then it just never happened. I never saw anybody getting high working situation. I know people did. I know pe- there were people who did drugs, but nobody was overt. I never saw it. Maybe because they had to be a little bit more on their game for the delivery of the comedy, and they respected the the show too much to do something along those lines. And maybe like a Saturday Night Live where it was late at night, a little bit more slapsticking. It didn't matter as much. I don't know. We didn't even drink. We didn't even drink alcohol. We just worked and we drank a lot of coffee. That's what, that was our vice. We drank <laughs> lots of coffee to get high, to get excited and energized. And so that maybe did its damage, but no, no drugs, no drugs. Didn't see any, not even, not even smoking weed. I didn't see that. Yeah. Interesting. I would have never thought it was that clean of an environment, especially during the the time period. So then, Paula, of the people that you've met over the years, just being in the house with your dad or introductions from there or 
the writers that you got a chance to interview, who was your favorite? And was there any special story that you got a chance to exchange with them because it was somebody that you held in such high esteem for, for a long time? Well, in terms of one of the perks of having my dad in the business was I was invited onto the sets of my favorite TV shows to see them being filmed. So I could meet all my favorite celebrities that way. I just remember William Shallert. He played the dad on the Patty Duke show. He was uh-huh, yeah. one, of, one of the nicest. He played his guitar for us be- between takes, and he was just very sweet. You had mentioned Lucille Ball. Well, I when I was in high school, Lucy Arnaz was in some of my classes, and I remember a mother-daughter tea that Lucille Ball attended, but I didn't. It didn't mean anything to me. Oh wow! I just got chills when you said that you guys, <laughs> you guys were in class together. I'm a huge yeah. Lucille wow. Ball fan, like like a crazy person when it comes to her. Yes, because she grew up with it. It is funny because I was never in awe of celebrities because I was always around them. It just became normal. Well, Jerry yeah, Mather, just... who played Leave It to Beaver, he went to the same college as I did, and we parked in the same parking lot, and so we'd walk in. And our first class was at the same time of the day, so we'd often meet there and walk in. And then when my car wasn't running, he'd give me rides home in his Porsche. <laughs> and See, that's that's North, the perks. Yeah, that's North, the perks. the menace went to the same orthodontist that I did. Any other kids that you guys overlapped in school with since you're in that world? I mean, you're, you're around them all the time or running into them at, like you even said, the orthodontist. Stanley Livingston, he played, I think it was Chip on My Three Sons. He was in my high school. <laughs> See, those are great I don't stories. know anybody from my high school. No. <laughs> Nobody in my high school or my college. I went to Sonia house. Oh, yeah, that's a good story. Tell me. <laughs> I was 15. They invited me in like I was an old friend. They were getting ready to leave for a party. Bewitched was on the black and white TV at the time. Yeah, we had a nice, I had a nice time there. I sneaked out of the house and took a taxi there. <laughs> and Sonny gave me taxi fare back, and they gave me an autographed copy of their newest record, which was The Beat Goes On. Oh. And yeah, it was quite an experience for a 15-year-old. Yeah, I mean, not like I said in the beginning, not a lot of people can share the stories that you guys do. I mean, that's just awesome to be able to have gone through those experience with those classic people. It's like nowadays, if you met a couple celebrities, eh, you know, there's not that many that you could say, oh my God, it's amazing that I met them. And, but you got a chance to meet so many classic people and even work with them. I mean, that's just, mm-hmm. that's just an honor to be able to have that experience. So I'm, I'm sure you both are grateful for that. And it sounds like it. You can hear it in your voices. Well, that's, when I was looking, getting endorsements for the book, one of the ones I wanted was Mike Farrell, since I talked about MASH in the book. And I had him on my to-do list to call him. And I didn't that day. And that night I was with a friend in a restaurant and I look over and it's Mike Farrell literally at the next table. (laughs) (laughs) See, it was meant to be. He was was supposed to be part of the book. (laughs) Are you still running into celebrities? Sometimes in the market or in the the mall, you you still run into celebrities because we live in Los Angeles where they make shows and movies. So it becomes not such a big deal. It's very strange. But you'll see somebody, you might, of course you'll, acknowledge that you saw them, but it's not the thrill it would be. I, I, I imagine if you never had that chance and you just have to run into them because you're visiting L.A., but you kind of become callous about the business when you're here and you see it so much. 
Well, and you guys were immersed in it. It was not only where you were living in it, you were professionally in it, Kim and then Paula, you grew up around it. So you were just, you were desensitized and you got a yeah. chance to be at a time period when you were, you respected the actors or the other colleagues that you work with as opposed to where they were just moving a little bit more, you know, they're famous, but they didn't have talent. You know? Yeah. So you had a different level of a relationship when it came to people that were actually extremely talented and famous at the same time. So I can see how that is different. So with Ken, I know that we, I mentioned that Paula, we, we wanted to talk about some of the books and the projects that you're working on now. Ken, is there anything else that you want to share about your writing, things that you're doing now, any special stories, anything that you want to cover before we switch it a little bit here and talk about Paula's current projects? Not, not really. I, I really enjoyed. I just want to say, it's, it, though it's a very hard business to break into and you need an element of luck, it's very rewarding and I enjoyed it. I'm glad that was my career, though now I'm a teacher. I do teach at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco, and I do enjoy teaching. But that's not all I have to say. I mean, I could go on for hours and hours with some of these stories about people, but I really want to hear what Paul has to say. And I also, I always like to say this and whenever anybody asks me about her book. When I read her book, I read it because I wanted to read about me. <laughs> of course. But then, of course you did. But then I read, I read the whole book, and I was really impressed with the similarity that we all had, that we feel so many of the same things, and and I learned something from the book about writers who, many of the writers feel they write by the seat of their pants, meaning they just kind of go in and go through it. They don't really know why, but they know how. And I think there's a sense of that. You just feel it through in comedy more than drama, I believe. You just have to feel your way through. And I got a real sense of that from Paula's book. I really did enjoy reading it. I think everybody would enjoy it, even if they don't know the writers. I think they'll get, they will know some of the writers because some of the, the she interviewed are, are current writers and some are older writers, but you'll see the common bond between the comedy from the earlier, cleaner, more wholesome versions of the stuff that works now, which is quite different, but also very much the same. And did you know some of the writers in there as you were reading them because you had met them or worked, you know, cross paths oh, before? Oh, I knew all so- of them. Oh, I knew all of them. They're legends. I, I Some of them I had met and a couple I had worked with, but I knew of all of them. And I really did enjoy hearing what they had to say about writing and finding that I had similar thoughts with people who wrote shows that I saw as a child. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. So who was your favorite or your idol that you looked up to or mentor of the list that she did get a chance to interview? Well, it's funny because it's who I worked with. It was James L. Brooks. When I was just old enough to appreciate the difference between a real character comedy and maybe a more joke-oriented or more of a physical comedy, I I loved everything that Jim Brooks was doing. I never expected to work with him, and I ended up working with him. And she she got him to say things in the book that I never knew, even after working with him for five years, or more than that, I worked with him on the Trace Ullman show, too, but... He's, he's still my favorite. Well, she got him to say stuff because she's good at what she does. That's probably why. Oh, right, yeah. Paula? Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> she's like, you're going to tell me some stories, and you're going to tell them now, buddy. <laughs> so you, I'm here to interview you. Let's do this. Oh, man. Yeah, she's, um, she is. She got me to say things I didn't expect to say. 
And she was very nice about maybe not putting something in there that I may have said that would have gotten everybody in trouble. So, so is that how you guys met? Really, over the book? Over, that's how you met? It is. I said the book met. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but we were also in the same high school class together, but we didn't know each other. Right. And you, you right. didn't date, right? No dating back then? We didn't know that the other existed. Oh, no. yeah. oh yeah, we big didn't school. know each other. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, it was big school. Yeah, it was a big school. The Hollywood High, or which one did you guys go to? Oh, Grant High. Grant High. Grant. But that's, that was in Los Angeles, yeah. right? Yes. It's it was in Los Angeles. Angeles. I think we had, how many students do, do, were, were in our, you don't know, it wasn't something like 3,000, and wasn't there 1,000 in our class alone? I don't know. It was, some huge, it was a big number, so you just didn't know everybody. So. Yeah, well, you know, that's part of the deal. I mean, it was said have been interesting when you guys figured that out after she's interviewing for the book. And you're like, where'd you go? Wait, I went there too. Well, no way! <laughs> um, by the way, yeah. I want to clarify. This, the high school I went to with Lucy Arnaz was a private Catholic school in Hollywood. It wasn't Grant. Oh, that's interesting that she put her kids in a private Catholic school. So then, Paula, as I mentioned in the beginning, you also write gift books and the greeting cards. And when you had sent me a bunch of your works, I said, send me all, all of the work that you're doing. You, you sent me the a couple samples of the, the Blue Mountain cards and then a couple of the cards that you did that are, when I saw them, I just started laughing. I said, I, I have bought so many of these over the years. And I actually have quite a few in my office. That it was the it's the cards that it's just jumped out at me that when someone sees a blue mountain card they or the and they know exactly which I'm talking about when they see it, and I guarantee you that somewhere in in my piles of cards that I have I'm going to look through them and it, there's definitely got to be one that that your writings and your inspiration quotes are on there so. Tell a little bit about Dan and then obviously the, the new project that you're working on, the, I think it's inspirational quotes and the things that you're doing now, because I know you wanted to bring it up because it's some powerful stuff. Well, I started as a writer under contract with Blue Mountain Arts, and at the time I was writing 40 or 50 line long unrhymed prose messages. And the market demand has forced me to get shorter and shorter, and so now basically I'm doing inspirational quotes. I'm trying to build a brand. I've done so well in the real world. I mean, I've been licensed by major companies worldwide for years. My current most recent licensing agreement is with a company in Australia called Affirmations Publishing House. And they're doing a, they call it an insight pack. It's a gift box of 56 affirmations. But I'm trying to build a brand because, interestingly, when I did the comedy book, my publisher had hired a PR firm to run a social media campaign, publicity campaign. And he saw my quotes, and he was really excited. He said these would be perfect for social media. So I'm putting them online now and trying to build a following and a brand. I'm not selling anything through that at this point. I'm just trying to get followers and likes. Actually, I have online stores, but those are for products like cards and posters. And I'm phasing those out because I really want to build this new brand. My handle at Twitter is at Paula Finn Quotes. I think it's easy to remember. I'm going to put that all on the website, too, so that people can access it whenever they want to. And I I try to share or retweet the the tweets when I'm paying attention to Twitter. So I will will definitely always try to do that for you. I appreciate that. Because they're good. They're actually really good. 
Thank you. Well, people respond to them in the real world all these years. If you guys really think about between the two of you, you've almost hit every category of possible types of writing besides maybe a movie. I mean, you've television, you've got book, you've got stand-up comedy, you've got the licensing avenue, you've got products, you've got the longer quotes, you've got the greeting cards. You've hit all the topics of possible ways to have writing become some sort of a career and a revenue stream. So with that being said, do you guys have any advice for writers, authors on how they can actually maybe get started in in all these different categories? Because it seems like there's more than just writing a book to actually take your writings and do something profitable with it and something that you love. As far as the inspirational, obviously there are not as many paper greeting card companies anymore as there were. But on social media, you can get your stuff out there and have it share it with the world easily. So that's an advantage. I wanted to say one thing, and that was that my work was, has been stolen a few times. And I used to discover it when I looked in the publisher's product catalog. I'd see it there. But I had a quote that I saw on a mag- Someone put it on a magnet, and I saw it at the whole food store. Turns out it was a company that bought quotes and they didn't confirm the origin of them, and they attributed it to some um, dead guy, actually. And so that quote has since gone viral. Oh. When I Googled it, it was on over 2 million websites at one time. I've seen it in the, in the real world, too, on posters at a yoga studio and this whole thing. It's either got the other guy's name on it or anonymous, and then someone else has taken it as theirs as well. And I just... You know, I wanted to put that out there because once there's a misconception on the Internet, you can't get rid of it. You can't. Mm-hmm. And there is no recourse. I mean, it's not like you right. trademark a quote, right, or register oh, it. Well, I did. It. Actually, no, I had the documentation to prove my copyright ownership of it. And that's why the company, we settled a small, it was a small settlement because I had no idea, like in 10 years, it would take off the way it has. So. Oh, so you mean they're still, they're, your settlement was basically you got a certain amount of proceeds and they were still able to use the quote because you thought, what's this, how is this going to make a bunch of money? So they could uh, no, still use no, it. No, they, they were oh. cease and desist thing. No, they stopped selling it. But like I said, someone obviously put it on the internet and it took off. Wow. And I never, and then you happen to see it at Whole Foods on a magnet. Well, that, that's before it became big on the internet. No, right. I thought when it was originally published, not originally, but when this company first published it on a magnet. And I had sold it for, I guess, a framed wall decor like a decade earlier. So obviously someone had it, and that's where they saw it, and that they sent it in, and the company didn't check to see who the original creator of it was. And, yeah, it just turned into this whole misunderstanding. Interesting. I mean, I'm glad that you brought that up, that people will be a little bit more aware of that they have to go through certain protocol in order to, what, would you copyright it? Is that what it's called that you, you have to do when you, when you want to? Well, you can't copyright every one because it's like, I think, $60 fee now to get something copyrighted. So this was in a volume of, of writing. Well, see, these are, these are unknown things that people don't realize, and especially now in a, in a different, different era, different digital age. I mean, things you've got you to gotta think about. Very interesting. So even when they write, a, if they write a spec pilot or a spec script, they should register it before they start giving it to people to read, because it's easy to for somebody just latch on to it and claim it's theirs. And unless you have something to prove it's yours, it's gone. Yeah, and then if it turns into something huge, well, then 
Oh, well, how horrible would that be to know that something you, that someone yeah. stole from you becomes extremely successful? Oh, talk about frustrating. Before we go, is there anything else that you guys want to contribute? Do you want to plug a website? Do you want to give any other information? I mean, I will open up the floor to you because I appreciate you both coming on, sharing some stories. Please go ahead and provide anything else that you want or even Paula, again, give your, your Twitter handle. At Paula Finn Quotes. And then my comedy one is at Talking Comedy. And then if anyone is familiar with the website Zazzle, it's Z-A-Z-Z-L-E, and it's kind of like Etsy. People sell their own creations. And I have three stores there, and the one called Garden of Prose contains greeting cards that are like the Blue Mountain. They're the longer, unrhymed prose cards. So if you like that style, then you'll find a bunch of them there. And I collaborated with photographers to create them. And then Christian Market, my store is called Words with Spirit. And, you know, those are for the Christian Market. As I said, my focus now is on getting followers. You don't have to pay anything to follow me. <laughs> Can anything else you want to share before we let you guys go enjoy your evenings? Just to, to say that if you, if you really love writing, you have to just write and write and write. And don't worry about when you sell it. Eventually, you'll sell it, or if you don't, you'll still do that all your life because it's like painting or some other art form. It's just very satisfying to do. Good advice. You both have been wonderful. I appreciate it so much. Paula Finn, the author of Sitcom Writers Talk Shop, and also the award-winning, and I should say Emmy Award-winning writer of Cheers and Taxi, Tracy Ullman Show, Ken Esten. You guys have been wonderful. I look forward to hopefully having you on down the road in the future, maybe share a little bit more stories. Thank you. You're welcome. Paula's book, Sitcom Writers Talk Shop, Behind the Scenes with Carl Reiner, Norman Lear, James L. Brooks, Keith Esten, and other geniuses of TV comedy, can be purchased on our website, and 2% of the total purchase price is donated to our charitable movement to support vets, pets, and kids. Just click the Marketplace tab on our website or visit reviveouramericandream.com. That's reviveouramericandream.com. And go to the author's page, click the picture of a book in the entertainment section, and purchase away. And while you're there, check out the rest of the products that are available. We've partnered with well-known brands and websites. So 2 to 20% of your total purchase, as long as you click on our banners and links on the website, is donated to the charitable movement to support our vets pets and kids. The concept is all about community-powered philanthropy. You're buying something, doesn't cost you any extra, but as long as you click on our links to the website, a donation is made. Click, buy, make a difference. So thank you for supporting our movement and enjoy Paula's book. You've been listening to Everything Home with Michelle Swinnick. Life laughter, and the pursuit of happiness. To meet, learn from, and hire the experts and the guests, professionals, and members of the Everything Home Socially Conscious Referral Network and Marketplace, visit everythinghometalkshow.com slash episodes. And to listen, subscribe, rate, review, like, follow, comment, and share, go to www.everythinghometalkshow.com and find us on all the major listening platforms. Thanks for listening. We hope you were entertained, and we hope that you picked up some real-life, tangible takeaways from some good people doing good business and good things. Till next time, this is Everything Home, signing off. Promo.
you know. 63% of consumers prefer to buy from purpose-driven brands and businesses that reflect their own values, beliefs, and support charitable causes. Promos for a Purpose provides business owners with ways to support worthy causes and promote their brands at the same time with its comprehensive done-for-you marketing and media program. Visit www.promosforapurpose.com for more information. Promosforapurpose.com Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.